So we've been going through this series now for a few weeks about the marks of a disciple maker, right? We talked about a passion for Jesus. We talked about knowing scripture, uh, living in community. And last week, Pastor Travis, he preached on having a heart for the lost and our call to have a heart for the lost. And this is where it gets a little, a little uncomfortable for us. And he said that because what happens when we have a heart for a lost and we start thinking about other people? That means that we're thinking about them instead of ourselves. And that can be kind of a different place for us when we're so used to thinking about what we can get out of Christianity and what the church can do for us. For us to start thinking about those who are beyond the church, who are lost, who are not here yet. But if we think about it, that's what this is for. That's why we're here. And yes, we do get blessed in the process, but if you look at Luke 19.10, Jesus said to the uh, Pharisees, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And the context of that verse is that Jesus was sitting with uh, sinners and, and uh, people that you wouldn't necessarily find in church. And the religious people started to grumble and say, well, what is he doing with them? And so Jesus answered with that. So it needs to be written into our DNA as believers that we are living for the lost. And this morning, what I wanted to do is walk us through what that looks like practically. How our lives would look if we were living for the lost. Because it's one thing to to have a heart for the lost. It's another thing to act on it. And we can say all day long that we have a heart for the lost, that we care about the lost people. But until we start doing something about it, those are just empty words. And so if you're taking notes this morning, the point that I want us to understand and walk away with is that to live for the lost, to live with a heart for the lost, we need to be anticipation, be in anticipation to give the gift of living water to everyone we meet. Everyone. Not the people who are easy, not the people who look like us, everyone. So we need to be in anticipation. And to do that, let's look at John chapter 4, and we'll turn there now. Because what we see in this story is Jesus living for the lost. Right? All throughout his ministry, he's living for the lost. That's his mission, that's his purpose. And he gathered his disciples and he trained up his disciples so that they could do that as well. Because it's a difficult job to reach everyone. But the way that he did it was through his disciples. And we'll see in this uh, passage in John chapter 4 how he does that. So it's a long passage, but I wanted to get the entire story of that. So John chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. 
So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well to drink and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. Wow. (laughs) When you have said what you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and walked away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I have ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what 
You said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So that's him living for the lost. And we're going to break that apart and look at how we can do the same thing, how we can be in anticipation to give the gift of living water to everyone we meet. And I look at that, and I used to think differently. I used to think that if we could do evangelism and put on these big events and invite people to church, then my work would be done. That, that they would get saved, they would say the prayer, and they would be fine. Mark another one for the kingdom. Great. But as I was reading this week in the master plan of evangelism, he says, Jesus was not trying to impress the crowd, but usher in a kingdom. And so that's why he found this woman who was by herself, and he sat down with her, and he spent time with her. And I began to realize that the way that I was thinking about evangelism and reaching the lost was, was all wrong. And that I needed to sit with somebody and walk with them and walk through the gospel with them and not leave them after they said a prayer. And I think about this for all of us. And the question that I want to ask us this morning as we're thinking about this is what will our spiritual legacy be as a church? Because we need to grow outward towards the lost by growing inwards towards Jesus. And if, you, if our church was a scaled version of your ministry, would it grow? Or would it shrink? Would we be evangelizing or would we, would we be focused on ourselves? Because in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul says, imitate Christ, therefore, uh, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so we need to imitate Christ, and we need people to imitate us. And Christ's message was this. We need to go outwards towards the lost by growing inward toward Jesus. And so that question about what our spiritual legacy is going to be, is it going to be that we had a lot of people come through the door and then leave? And we got to check them off on our attendance? Or is it that... They stayed, and they put down roots, and they wrought people, and they were discipled, and then they discipled others. What kind of legacy do you, you want to leave? When you get to heaven and there are so many people there waiting to greet you because you're the reason that they are in heaven. What's our spiritual legacy? I think about the parable in Matthew 13 of the sower and the different seeds that fell on the different soil. And the seed that fell in the shallow soil that sprang up, right? Somebody who comes in the church and they, and they just blossom. But because they're in a church where they can't put down a root, they get burned up when the trials of this world come. What's our spiritual legacy going to be? And we see how Jesus did that. And the first thing that he did in verses 1 through 9 was that he put himself aside. 
And so if we're going to live with a heart for the lost, the first thing that we need to do is put ourselves aside. Easy, right? All right. Last week, Pastor Travis, he talked about being a nobody for a kingdom. And that's true. Because that means that God gets all the more glory. I love being a nobody for the kingdom. And when you think about this, and when you think about the, Jesus, the people that Jesus picked to be a disciple, right? Who do you pick? Scholars? Pharisees? People who knew scripture and would be able to teach, right? Those are the people that he picked? Politicians? C- celebrities? Who do you pick? Fishermen? Nobody's. All the wisdom of the world would say that somebody like Jesus, who's coming to turn the world upside down, would need people who knew scripture, who knew, you know, who had influence and could sway people. But Jesus knew better. He wanted people from the world who couldn't fall back on their education, their wealth, their influence. They only had their experience with the living God. That is why Christianity has historically been especially successful among the poor. Get this. When you don't have the means to be your own savior, you look to God to be your savior. You put yourself aside and say, don't look at me, don't look at my life. Look at Christ in me. See, you and I, we're not good saviors for people. And we love to fix and save people and, and if we can and get them to check a box, then that's great. But we don't fill that role well. And lastly, if I'm, not, if I'm a nobody for the kingdom, then I have nothing to protect. No wealth, no reputation, no temporary things to distract me. And isn't that what Jesus did? Wasn't he a nobody? This was God, right? Who came as a carpenter's son. Because it was all about glorifying his father. So if we start in verse 1 and we look about how Jesus, in this case, put himself aside... We need to set the context, right? So he was coming from Jerusalem, heading north to Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Great. What does that mean? We are not in Israel. So what does that mean? First, we see in verse 6 that Jacob, uh, Jesus, wearied as he was from, from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So let's start there. It's a good place. Sixth hour, in that time, the way that they counted it, sixth hour would be about midday, noon. It was hot. Jesus was tired. Yeah, he got tired. And he was sitting beside the well. And in verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Two things from that. One, she was coming in the middle of the day, not when the other women came in the morning when it was cooler. She was coming in the middle of the day when it was hot. So she's isolated. She's alone. She's vulnerable. Second thing, she came to draw water. She didn't send a servant 
She was not well off. She came to get it herself. And Jesus said to her, and this is, we miss this, but this is huge. Jews did not talk to Samaritans. They considered them unclean, unworthy. So by the rules of his day, he had no reason to talk to her. And yet he did. And this is what sets everything off. Because it says that somehow she knew he was a Jew. In verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, Samaritan, uh, a woman of Samaria? So something by his clothes, something by his demeanor, the way he spoke, right? She, she recognized that Jesus was a Jew, right? First thing she does, what separates us? She looked at their differences. She said, you, why are you talking to me? There was contention between the Jews and the Samaritans. And when Jesus approached her and spoke to her, this did not fit with her narrative of how Jews would speak and deal with them. And if we take that today, and if we want to apply that to our lives, how do people respond when you're a Christian and you approach them? Do they say, how is it that you, a Christian, talk to me, a Muslim, a homosexual, an abortion advocate, an atheist, whatever it is, name it. Is there a narrative of, peop- uh, uh, of ways that people think of us when they hear that we're a Christian or we try and reach out to them? What are you doing talking to me? Do you know who I am? Do you know where I've been? Do you see where you are? In a book on why young people are leaving the church, because apparently they are, uh, the author says that the research from the Barna group found that people perceived Christians to be overprotective, shallow, anti-science, repressive, exclusive, and doubtless meaning they didn't have any doubts. I'll read those again. Overprotective, shallow, anti-science, repressive, exclusive, and doubtless. All right. Good thing that doesn't apply to us here. But that's the way that people are going to perceive you when you try and approach them as a Christian. Is that true for us? But look at what Jesus did. Notice what happens here. Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He doesn't, bring, he doesn't even bring up the difference. He doesn't go into, well, let me tell you why as a Jew I'm talking to you as a Samaritan and let's hash this out and let's figure this out. He doesn't even bring up their differences at all. Why? Because he was dealing with something bigger, something deeper than what was separating them. 
this is so important for us today in this country. I don't know if you guys have noticed that, but we have some issues of division in this country, and it's kind of tearing us apart, right? And is the church contributing to that or not? Are we contributing to division and highlighting our differences? Or are we looking at something bigger, something that's common among everybody? See, our tendency and our default, just like the Samaritan's woman, is to go to what separates us, to go to our divisions and to say, you're not like me. I'm a Republican, so I'm not going to share the gospel with Democrats or whatever it is. Whatever that separates you, vice versa, it's the same. And isn't that what the enemy does? Isn't that the world we live in? Where we look at the history of this world and the, and the, the war, the conflict. We like to argue with people. We like to separate ourselves into ours and yours, us and them. And it's interesting, the second law of thermodynamics is the law of entropy. Things break down and tend toward disorder and they fall apart. And if you remember, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. The enemy roams around sowing seeds of discord and disorder and it breaks my heart when those seeds get planted in the church. That is, there is no place for that here. I understand if we have different views on things, but look at what Jesus was doing. He's saying those things don't matter in light of something that's more important, something that unifies you and me even if we fall on different sides of an issue. He got himself out of the way. And if we're going to live with a heart for a lost, we need to anticipate that people are going to see the conflict between us and we need to move around it. Not by ignoring it, but by saying something even more important. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he's implying the second thing that we need to do here, which is show the thirst that she had. And there's, they're, they're working on two different planes here. Jesus is talking about a spiritual, deeper thirst. And she's thinking the well that he's sitting next to. Because he implies that she is the thirsty one and that everyone is thirsty for something. Everyone is thirsty for something. We just satisfy it in different ways. Every lost person that we come across is dying of thirst. And they live their lives trying to satisfy it. I think it was John D. Rockefeller, uh, either him or Vanderbilt, one of those rich guys back then. But somebody asked him and they said, how much money is enough for you? How much money would you be satisfied with? And he said, one dollar more than what I have. So he would have another dollar and then he would need one dollar more. And that is, it's what we see. 
that nothing in this world outside of Christ is going to satisfy us. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. So to have a heart for the lost, we need to see and convince people and show them that they're thirsty. Show them that there's a need. If you want to look at it from a different perspective, look at it in a different way. Jesus said, the, sick don't, uh, the healthy don't need a doctor, but the sick. Everybody in this world is ill. And we need to bring them into the hospital, into the, into the hospital so that they can get better, so we can give them that life. But I'll give it to you guys. The struggle that we have today in the world that we live in is that many lost people don't even admit that they're sick. So if you're a believer and you're in that, that, that place, we've got a hospital, but nobody wants to go in because nobody thinks they're sick. We've convinced ourselves through relativism and pluralism and all of these, these buzzwords that we hear that I can live my way that truth is relative and that I'm not doing anything wrong and my way of life is right, regardless of what it is. We were talking in small group on Thursday about how some of us, before we were Christian, we would be in these situations and we wouldn't even feel guilty. We would have friends that would support our lifestyle because there was no wrong lifestyle. And so we need to be shown and we need to show people that they are thirsty for God, that their life is incomplete, that they are dying of thirst. And that's what Jesus did. And it's great. She responds in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And that's great. We can leave it right there. We don't need it to go into the husband situation. I don't want to deal with that. It, you know, she's willing. She's ready. She's got, you know, she knows she's thirsty. But Jesus needs to keep going. He needs to dig deeper. Because he needs to offer her the water. So he goes through this dialogue with her in verses 16 to 26 about how she has no husband and that he is a prophet and he needs to correct her way of thinking because he needs to offer her the right water, right? We need the right message that we're giving people, not some kind of vague idea. But we need people to worship in spirit and truth. And so that's why Jesus had to continue this dialogue because in verse 26 he says, I who speak to you am he saying Jesus is the water. He's the one that's going to satisfy the thirst. So he could have left it, but he had to keep going. And what's her response when she hears that? Her first response in verse 28. So the woman left her water jar she didn't even take her water jar. This was how big of a deal this was. She left her water jar and went away to the town and said to the people, 
Come and see a man who told me all that I had ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. So he showed her that she was thirsty, and then he gave her the water, and she drank. And what was the first thing that she did? She told somebody. And this is a question that I ask myself a lot of times. When was the last time there was something in my life? When was the last time God did something in my life that I needed to tell people about? She had an experience with with God, with Jesus, that she had to share. And so if we're thinking about living for the lost, what are we telling people? Are we telling them about what God is doing in our life? Newsflash, God has to be doing something in your life in order for you to tell somebody about what God is doing something in your life. But she went away and she told them, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She was offered the water and she took it. And what's the last thing that we need to remember? In verses 27 to 42, Jesus saw the harvest. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away to, into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, his disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? These guys, I love these guys. They're, you know, they're just trying to take care of Jesus. And, you know, did somebody, are you eating? Are you okay? Like, it, it, it's a mother thing. Like, I don't understand what it is. Are you eating? Is that okay? And Jesus is, he's, no, I'm, I'm good. Do you see what I'm doing here? Can we, can we focus on what's important? I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And I love this. I read this a while ago. I have to, I have to think that as Jesus is saying those words to his disciples, lift up your eyes. He's seeing the townspeople come out and come to him. Because in verse 30, it says, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Is that what he sees as he's telling his disciples, look at these people, they're coming. The harvest is already here. And I don't want to knock missions trips. I don't want to knock foreign mission trips because I've been on plenty of mission trips overseas and they're amazing. And if you haven't been on one, go. But there was something that I grew up with and I wanted to share with, it, share with you today. In our garage, there was a sign that was hanging up on the door to the garage. And it said, you are now entering the mission field. 
And so we printed these out and laminated, and they're on the table in the lobby. And I want you to take one, and I want you to put it somewhere that you'll see. Maybe it's in your car, so as you're driving, you, you remember that you are now entering the mission field. Maybe you put it on your desk at work. Maybe you hang it on your door so that whenever you leave your house, you're reminded that you are entering the mission field. For some of you, you might need to put it up in your home because your home is your mission field. But this is why I, I said that we need to be in anticipation. Because everyone that we come across is an opportunity for salvation, is an opportunity for us to give the living water to people who are thirsty. See, when Jesus sat down at the well, he was tired. I, I doubt that the first thing that he wanted to do was, was launch into this discussion with this woman and, and, and go on this journey. He just wanted some water. <laughs> but he was anticipating and he, he was ready. So we need to put ourselves aside for the people that God puts in our paths. Because I think about this and going back to the master plan of evangelism, when we see the harvest and we recognize it as everybody that's around us. The author says, one cannot transform a world except as individuals in the world are transformed. And individuals cannot be changed except as they are molded in the hands of the master. I'll say that again. One cannot transform a world except as individuals in the world are transformed. And individuals cannot be changed except as they are molded in the hands of the master. And we can do that for people. If we lead them and disciple them, we can change them. Individual, individual, one at a time. Not so that they just come into church and then leave, but so that they come, they put down roots, and then they make disciples. Truly transformed people. So I want to challenge you to this morning to live with a heart for a lost. Even in the face of people who might not want to hear it. You say, well, what if they don't accept what I, what I say? I don't care if you have to share the gospel and get rejected a hundred times. That hundred and first time, the next time you do it, when you pick yourself up and say, this person still needs the living water and they receive it, it's going to be worth it. One of my earliest efforts in evangelism, uh, I was in middle school and our church was putting on this event. It was... Uh, BMX, it was one of those events. I don't know what it was, but they had BMX bikers and they would, they would show up. And, and so we had these cool bulletins and handouts. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to go and I'm going to evangelize and I'm going to give these 
all out to my friends at lunch, and it's going to be great. And they're going to come, and they're going to get saved, and we're going to see revival in this church because I'm evangelizing. It did not go the way that I thought. So I've handed it to the first person. Mind you, these are middle school boys. So he proceeded to um, crumple it up and eat it. He chewed it. And uh, so that was one of my early experiences with evangelism. He ate my invitation. I guess like eating the word, right? Eating scripture maybe. But it did not go well for me. But I still need to do it for two reasons and there are two stories one I heard in Dallas from Marvin Campbell who spoke Friday morning he was the last speaker and he was telling his own story about discipleship and it was when he was in college he was newly saved and he was going on an evangelism trip uh, and they went to a beach I think it was in Virginia but he was ministering and they were in pairs and he kind of got separated from his partner and because God had spoken to his heart and he saw this person who was alone and he was alone for a reason this was a big dude covered in tats, covered in leather just really scary looking guy and his partner looked at him and said all yours, you got this and so he's like I I don't know but you know when God is really pressing on your heart and you feel it so he went up and he, he had some tracks and he started asking the questions. And the guy starts sobbing. Big dude. He starts sobbing. And he said to Marvin, he said, earlier today, I challenged God. I said, if you're real and you need to prove yourself to me, because I'm going to commit suicide by sunset. And history is full of these examples of people who never should have been ministered to, and yet somebody was willing to live for the lost, and it changed history. I was on social media just the other day, and I came across this story that somebody posted where she was telling her own story. And she said, I'm an atheist. We love ministering to atheists, don't we? It's just a great time when they just spit in our face. But she said, I'm an atheist, but I live in the South, so there's always religion being thrown in my face. For the context of this story, I had surgery in July, the fifth in a row of medical issue, for a medical issue I've had for two years. One weekend before my surgery, I went and got a facial. She says, let me tell you, if you've never had a facial before, you need to. So on her recommendation, go and get a facial. Uh, She said this was the most relaxing experiences I've ever had, to be honest. But my esthetician, Kristen Champa, help me out with that first service. An esthetician, somebody who does facials, I guess. Uh, but my esthetician and I had been talking sometime during my facial that I was having surgery soon. So at the end, she asked, can I pray for you? This put me in a weird position because I don't believe in the power of, my pr- uh, in the power of prayer, as my aunt calls it. I love those aunts. So I had two choices, to say yes and just go with it, or to say no and look like uh, she used an unpleasant word there. Um, so she, uh, she says, so I told her yes, and I suppose I expected her to pray for me at a later date. But she prayed for me, with me, right then and there in that room. And honestly, I bawled. Look, I don't believe in a God. 
I don't believe that her attempting to contact an entity would have, changed my out, would have changed my outcome of my surgery at all. But the sheer fact that this woman, whom I'd known for all of an hour while she did my facial, was willing to take five minutes out of her day to sit down and use her faith to help me. So this is an atheist, and she says, shame on the people who put down others for their willingness to pray and help them. I want to be that person. I want to be somebody who says, can I pray for you? And then prays for them right there. Regardless of whether or not they accept, regardless of whether they say, how are you a Christian talking to me? Why are you doing this? This isn't what you people do. But I'm living for the lost. When I was living in New York, uh, I did prison ministry for a while at a, at a youth detention facility. And so we would, meet, we would go every week and, and kind of sit in a circle with some kids. I mean, like young kids. But there was one week where he looked over at me and we were having a discussion. He looked over at me and he said, so are you getting paid for this? How much are they paying you to come here? Because this kid had it in his mind that nobody would want to come and sit down with him and tell him how much Jesus loved him unless they were getting paid to do it. He said, how much did they pay you to come here? And I can't, I, I mean, the smile on my face must have been something because I just, no, I don't get paid. See, it was something that was stirring up in me to spend my Thursday nights driving 40 minutes to go and sit down with some kids who had no love in the world. So what, it was, what would it look like if, if we started living like that? If we said, I don't care if they accept or not. I'm going to have a heart for the lost. See, because the question I want to ask is, when was the last time you evangelized to someone who didn't look like you? When was the last time you evangelized to someone who was, who was hard? And, and bitter. And I'll tell you why we don't do it. It's because the devil wants you to think that you can't pray. I have such a hard time convincing Christians to pray among other Christians. I can't imagine how they would do it in front of someone who's not a Christian. See, because he wants to convince you that your words aren't going to matter. He wants to convince you that the words that you say aren't going to be the right words and they're going to be turned off. He wants to convince you that the person sitting across from you doesn't want you to pray for them. He wants to keep you in your lane. He wants to keep you quiet. See, the, the biggest thing that the devil feels is, is people who love and are willing to do something about it. And so I want us to think about it in this way. We all know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I want to rewrite that this morning for you and for me. And I want it to look like this. For Ian so loved the world that he gave blank so that anyone he meets should know God 
and should not perish but have eternal life. For I so love the world that I gave something, whatever it is in your life, so that the people I meet would know God and should not perish but have eternal life. See, because God gave something, right? If we look at John 3.16, he gave something pretty big. And so living with a heart for the lost means sacrificing something. It means saying, for I so love the world, for I so love my neighbors that I'm willing to give. And then you fill that in. Your time. Your efforts. Whatever it is, will you be willing to give it so that somebody can have the living water? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as we close. This is what it's all about. Making disciples among the lost. And, and if, you're, if, you're, if you're saying, that's great, that's, you know, but this is too big for me, great. That's where we want you to be. And I'm not asking you necessarily all the time to go up to complete strangers. But are you intentional about building relationships with the people in your life? There's one thing that I love. It's, um, it's called the three-door test. And that test is the question, uh, do you know the person three doors down from you? Your neighbor three doors down. Can you get to know them? Can we begin this process where you start building relationships with people and introduce the gospel? Where they see your life, they see the living water, they see the fact that you have a water that satisfies your thirst, that you have a water that never runs dry. Can we begin to form those relationships with the people around us? Being intentional. Saying, hey, why don't you come over for dinner one night? It's as simple as that. You don't have to manipulate it's genuine love. It's genuine care for the people that are in your life. So as they sing this song, it's called The Scandal of Grace. And it's beautiful because it's the gospel. It's the living water. It's the words that mean that we never have to be thirsty again. And it's so simple and it makes no sense outside of, uh, outside of God. But the bridge of this song says, I'd be lost, I'd be lost, I'd be lost without you. It's some of my favorite words in this song. Because we have this tendency to, to go back to that default of us and them. Right? We're Christians, you're not. I'm saved, you're a sinner. But oh, for the grace of God, would we be in that same space. 
how close we are to being lost and how if it wasn't for the grace of God, we would be lost too. To say, I'd be lost without you. I would be wandering through this life finding, looking for something to satisfy that thirst and I can't imagine what that would be look, what that would look like. That would be so frustrating to think you've found it and then to, to have it just slip through your fingers. And this is all it is. It's grace. Yes, it's a scandal. Yes, it doesn't make sense. Yes, it's not fair. But I want to declare that this morning. That we would be lost just like them without God. Let's pray. God, we think about every person who could be filling these seats this morning. Lord, I think about these empty seats. May we live for the empty seat. Heavenly Father, I ask that you change our hearts so that our lives are not about us anymore, but they're about the people who are yet to come into your kingdom. I think about the brothers and the sisters, the mothers and the fathers, the sons and the daughters who are lost without you. God, that you would stir up our hearts not to care about ourselves, but to care about them. That we would live in anticipation of the opportunity to give the gift of living water to everyone we meet. In your name we pray. Amen.